Hi, I'm Dominic, and if we haven't met, I'm one of the pastor elders here. Glad to be with you guys today, sharing in some truth. Um, if you're visiting with us, welcome. If you were here at Easter last week and you have just come to faith in Jesus, welcome to the family of God. We're so happy that you are here. Um, we study the Bible on Sundays, usually chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through a book. And uh, we find ourselves in the middle of Ephesians right now. Before we get into it, um, let's pray together. Thank you that you have adopted us into your family as children. Thank you that you are our Father. And Lord, thank you for the other kids in your family, as we will talk about today. Um, But you're the head of it all, and so it's to you that we look now as we kind of set the table for where we're headed in the next months. We ask that you would do the work only you can do in convincing our, our hearts and minds of what is true and turning our eyes toward you. We ask that you would tear down every lofty idea that is trying to exalt itself above knowing you and that you would let truth prevail and that we would be receptive, our ears would be open, and uh, you would make us willing to respond to your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as uh, Billy alluded to, we're in the middle of a kingdom series, and there's three parts to the kingdom series. Kingdom kids, kingdom family, and kingdom come. And we just finished kingdom kids. And so now we are beginning to transition into the kingdom family um, part of the series. And for kingdom kids and kingdom family, we're using Ephesians as our backdrop. Um, Today, I'm going to be sharing a bit of our heart and what we believe to be God's heart for this series that we are coming into. And hopefully it will kind of whet our appetites for the kingdom family series. So I'm not teaching a passage of scripture today. Um, I'm kind of setting the table, casting vision for where we're headed. However, I would like to look at a verse in Ephesians 2 to kind of springboard off of. So it'll be up on the screen or if you have a Bible, Ephesians 2.19. says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. So in chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, we learned that we were children of God. That is our identity as Christians. And God is our Father. And it is from that place of identity as children that we now live. But it's more than that. As we're going to see today, we're not just adopted by a father. We were adopted into the Father's family. We'll read it again. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of of God's household. Have you ever not been picked or picked last even for something like a a team or a job you really wanted or a a group of friends that you were hoping to be a part of? Well, that's the kind of people that Paul is writing to here. And so were we, unpicked and outside. But by the blood of Jesus, we have been brought in. And what Paul is saying is you haven't just been brought into, oh, now you have access to worship God. Um, with the rest of us, or just brought into church, or even just a vital part of a a member of the body of Christ. 
He's saying you have now been brought into, right there in verse 19, you are now members of God's household. The word household in the Greek is this word oikios. Can you say oikios? It's the Greek word oikios. It's only used two other times in the New Testament besides right here in Ephesians. One time in Galatians 6 where it has the same usage. And then one time in 1 Timothy 5.8 where it says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, Greek word oikios, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That passage is obviously talking about, when it says household, it's talking about our family. It's talking about like our our bloodline family, fathers providing for their families. Oikios is the Greek word for flesh and blood family. So when he says members of God's household, oikios, literally translated, some of your translations might say it, it means of God's family. You are now members of God's family, members of his blood family. We have been brought in to an intimate, personal relationship that is as close as blood. Sometimes when we think about ourselves becoming Christians, we picture it more like we're being drafted into an army or like we're being hired to work at the family business. But God doesn't need people in his army. He doesn't need people at the family business. What he wants is children in his family. God is all sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need workers. He doesn't need soldiers. We weren't saved to do. We were saved to be. Now, does God invite us to partner with him in what he is doing? Absolutely. But not as slaves and servants, as sons and daughters. You were not hired into an organization. You were adopted into a family. And I want us to remember this phrase. The kingdom of God should look like family. Can you say that? The kingdom of God should look like family. An organization and a family are two entirely different things. And the kingdom of God should look like family. Let me break down a few differences here. In an organization, you place a high value on the bottom line. In a family, you place high value on relationships. In an organization, you place high value on things like performance and productivity. In a family, you place high value on things like grace and love for one another. In an organization, you look out for your own good. In a family, you look out for the good of others. Right? An employee in an organization is trying to get ahead, walks in the room and says, here I am. A family member looking out for the good of others walks into a room and says, there you are. Right? In an organization, participation is contractual. It is based on limited liability and distrust. In a family, participation is covenantal, based on unlimited responsibility and trust. In a family, if you're not cutting it, your job is on the line. I'm sorry, an organization, if you're not cutting it, your job is on the line. Some of y'all's families are like that. In an organization, if you're not cutting it, your job is on the line. In a family, if you're not cutting it, other members come along to help carry the load, right? And lastly, in an organization, if you continue to not perform well, then you are eventually let go in order to not hold back the company. In other words, your belonging has contingencies. But in a family, your belonging has no contingencies. And the kingdom of God should look like family. God has not hired us into an organization. He has adopted us into a family. And I get that some of us are kind of uncomfortable with that. For some of us, I'll be honest, for me, it sounds a lot easier to just be in an organization. 
just show up and do my job. I don't have to relate to anybody, right? Or even, I'm, I'm actually cool being in a family, Dom, but can I just like have the father without the people? Can I be like an only child kind of family situation? Because family means relationships. And relationships means people. And people are messy, right? But you could be in an organization and not have any real relationships. You could even be on a team and have no authentic relationships. You can even come to church all the time and serve at a church and have no authentic relationships. Oh, sure, you talk to people, but it's this deep, right? But if you are a family, then authentic relationship is part of the design. I say it again, relationship is part of the design of family. By the way, if that's news to you and your family life is terrible, this is probably a good place to start. Relationships. And not only are authentic relationships hard and messy, but good relationships require vulnerability. And vulnerability means that we're exposed. And if we're exposed, then that means we're susceptible to harm. And so when it comes to relationships, we would rather isolate ourselves with the assurance of protection than expose ourselves with the potential of harm. And that's a lot of us today. Maybe some of us who don't even fully realize it. And yet, we were not adopted into isolated Christianity. We were adopted into a community of believers. You are part of a family. And I hate to break it to you, but you don't have a choice. You're in. You're in a family. You're part of a family. You, were a, you are a chosen, specific, vital member of the body of Christ. Now, I suppose that you can choose to not participate in the family. And some of you don't. Some of you are what we call, you practice consumer Christianity. You consume and you consume and you consume. And you might even give a little bit of money in exchange for your consumption, but you don't participate. And it sucks for the rest of us because somebody's got to pick up your slack. And it's not as fruitful for the body of Christ and for the kingdom of God because nobody can actually do the job that you do and that you were intended to do because only God made you like you. But yeah, you cannot participate. You can choose to stay on the outskirts. However, we were designed for this, to work not like an organization, but like an organism with lots of moving, living parts all working in relationship to one another. This is how God designed it. And if he designed it, then there must be a reason why he designed it. If God has brought us into a family, then there must be something good about family. So I'd like to spend the remainder of our time kind of building a case for why kingdom family is for our good and for God's glory. Because if I'm not mistaken, 90% of the people in this room are like, I, I don't even know if you've put these words to it, but we live isolated lives. And we don't really want to do family. We're just trying to get our brains around like, oh, I'm a son or a daughter and I relate to God as a father. I don't want to do brothers and sisters. So I want to spend the rest of our time building a case for why kingdom family is for our good and for God's glory. And this is kind of, like I said, setting the table for where we're headed in the next several months. Three reasons why kingdom family is for our good and for God's glory. Number one, Scripture declares and even commands it. 
And when God declares and commands something in Scripture, it is always for our good, and it's always for his glory. And so when Scripture demands and declares kingdom family, we know that it's for our good and for his glory. One of the key passages that we would look at to look, when we look to Scripture is what we read this morning. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Remember the Greek word oikios. We are members of God's family. And I know that it would be easier to just operate and live like we're part of an organization. I would even be cool being like a member in the body as long as I don't have to interact that much with other members in the body. But that's not what God's word says. He uses this word oikios to describe his people as a family. He calls this a family. He wants us to understand that body parts work together, yes, as individual members, but together in relationship to one another like a family. And there are many other places in Scripture where we would find this idea of relating to one another as brothers and sisters. But there's one more specific passage I want to look at. And it's Matthew 12. You don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 12, Jesus is ministering to a bunch of people. And then his, uh, his biological brothers and Mary, his mother, show up. And somebody's like, hey, Jesus, your brothers and your mother are here. And here's what Jesus says in response, Matthew 12, 48. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus in Matthew 12 is basically redefining the definition of family. Jesus would go on to shed his blood and by his blood he would adopt people into his family and bind them together by blood that is thicker and runs deeper than the blood of ethnicity. In fact, the family of God is intended to be closer than our own biological families is what Jesus is saying here. Because we are bound by something, someone greater and stronger than biology. And it's all over the New Testament. Do you know there's over a hundred times that the phrase one another is used in the New Testament? Love one another. Care for one another. Carry one another's burdens. Admonish and correct one another. That's family. That's relationship. You can't do that out of relationship. This is how God designed it. This is what scripture commands and declares, kingdom, family, living. And yes, it's hard. And yes, it can be uncomfortable. But if scripture commands it, then we can trust God that it's good for us and it's for his glory. I'm glad the three of you are willing and said amen. The rest of you are like, what's the, is there like a antonym to amen? Like a, I don't agree. I want to say that out loud. You can't disagree with it though. It's scripture. The second reason why kingdom family is for our good and for God's glory is to live relationally is to exist like God exists. To live like family means to live relationally. And to live relationally means to exist like God exists. Let's go all the way back to the Genesis account, okay? To the creation account. All the way back in the beginning. And there, God is creating everything. The heavens and the earth and the seas and the animals. There's this pattern, this ongoing pattern. And then the pattern changes in Genesis 1, 26 when it says, Then God said, Let us 
make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there's two things I want to see here. First of all, God himself is a communal being. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God exists in community. He says it right there. Let us make them in our own image. God is three in one. God exists in community. Secondly, what we see here is that man images God best in relational community. Because God is, exists in community, man images God best in community. He created them, male and female. He created not just male, not just female. He created them, male and female. In Genesis 127, that verse right there, we understand that the image of God is best seen in community. And it wasn't just like, ah, the dude, the man, he can't, he doesn't, he's not going to be able to do it on his own, which is true about like me for sure. I better send him a woman. It wasn't just that. It was that God is a communal being. And and if humanity was to represent God, then he was to live in community. And so God created them, man and woman. And as we read the creation account, we continually see God describe everything as being very good. It is not until chapter 2 that we read the only thing God declared to be not good was a solitary Adam. Then the Lord said, Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. So I will make him a helper who is just right for him. Because humanity is created in the image of God, the only thing in all of the creation order that is not good is for man to be alone outside of relational community. Why? Because mankind cannot bear the divine image in solitude. People cannot bear the divine image in solitude. In other words, part of what it means to be an image bearer of God is to live in relationship with one another. Additionally, within relationships, we are able to proclaim the redemptive work of Jesus. Jesus said that the world would know that we are God's people by the love that we express to one another. That's redemptive relationship because when God comes into our lives and the work of Jesus is applied to a group of people's lives, walls are broken down that used to segregate races and ethnicities and cultural statuses. And all of a sudden, things are redeemed back together. And this demonstrates the gospel of redemption. And the postmodern culture that we live in doesn't just need to hear the truth of redemption. They need to see it modeled and lived out with one another in relational living. And it is in communal interaction with one another that we then practice these one another commands in scripture. And it's from this that we begin to see transformation, change lives, and change communities, which leads us to our next point. The third reason why kingdom family is for our good and for God's glory is transformation happens in relationship. Let me say it like this. Healthy relationships are the context in which God most of the time transforms and restores lives. 
Healthy relationships are the context in which God most often transforms and restores lives. Now, that's kind of a heavy statement and a statement that some of us don't like. So I'm going I'm to take the next several minutes to back up this statement. Because that healthy relationships are the context in which God most often transforms and restores lives. And I'm not talking about what I'm doing right now. This is not relationship. We don't have a relationship. I don't, I mean, I might have a relationship with you, but this does not imply that we have a relationship, right? So this is not what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. Healthy relationships are the context in which God most often transforms and restores lives. And this is a hard one because we don't want to need somebody in order for God to do everything that he wants to do in our lives. We don't want to need somebody for that. And technically we don't. God doesn't need us to do anything in people's lives. God doesn't need us to bring transformation and restoration in people's lives. Just like God doesn't need us to preach the gospel or need us to lead the church or need us to make disciples. However, he usually does use us. Look at the entire Bible. This is what God does. God accomplishes his work through his people. Like, like Britt Merrick always used to say, throughout history, God has chosen not to work I'm sorry, to work through his people, not independent of them. Why? Because we're his body. We're his body parts. First Corinthians says it. You are the body of Christ. We'll see it later in Ephesians 4. Uh, you are individual members of it. Each one of us is a specific body part of Christ. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. So when he wants to do something, he's going to do it through us. God works through his people most of the time. And most of the time, God relates to his people through his people. So for instance, if God is wanting to demonstrate more of the Father's love to you, chances are he's probably going to want to involve somebody from his family to do that because that's what God does. He does it through his people. In our lives, when we have been in like desperate financial need and just needed God to come through in miraculous ways, how did he provide for us financially? He dropped money down from heaven. No, he didn't drop money down from heaven. People showed up and, and, and by God's grace were the hands and feet of Jesus. And God demonstrated his faithfulness to us through his people. That's what God does. And when we don't allow this to happen, we're actually missing out on a big part of our relationship with God. Because part of how God relates to his people often is through his people. And just like it is with God's provision in our lives, and just like it is for discipleship in our lives, it is also true that most of the time, transformation and restoration happens in our lives through people. And of course it is. We'd be fools to think that God would use us to bring salvation to others, but wouldn't use us to bring transformation to others. Healthy relationships are the context in which God most of the time restores and transforms lives. So let me break it down even further, but I need you to stick with me, okay? Like just say, I'm with you, Dom. Okay, like seven minutes, I need your brains with me. Okay, because I'm going to get like a little bit deep right here. Okay, I need you to like be with me. Let me break it down like this. The heart and the mind is where transformation really happens in the life of the Christian. 
When we're born again, our spirits are made alive. That is salvation. But the sanctification process is really a transformation of the heart and the mind, specifically. We look at places like uh, Romans 12, and it talks about the renewal of the mind. We look at places like Ezekiel 36, and we talk about, uh, it talks about the renewal of the heart. Our hearts and minds know they won't be fully transformed until we're in heaven and glory. But while we are here, there is a transformation process that is happening right there. In the mind, where the thinking happens, and in the heart, where the feeling happens. And we get the physiology of the mind. If I said to you, where does the thinking happen? You'd be like, oh, in the brain. But we don't always understand the physiology of the heart, the seat of our emotions. We are transformed in the mind. What's happening is God transforms, like literally he's reworking stuff. He's changing our thinking, right? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But when God is transforming our minds, literally changing the way that we think. But where does the feeling happen? Where is the heart? We know where the mind exists, but where is the heart located? Where is the, the emotions located? This might be news to some of us, but emotions actually occur in a part of the brain. Not the same part of the brain where the th- critical thinking and creative thinking happens, but in a part of the brain called the limbic system. And so when the Bible says the heart, it's not talking about the 10-pound organ in your chest. There's not a theologian in the world or a doctor in the world who believes that. It's not talking about our spirit. That's That's a different thing. When the Bible talks about our heart, it's talking about the seat of our emotions and the seat of our belief systems. And if we were to put a scientific label on it or name on it, it would be the limbic system in, it's actually in like the heart of the brain. It's in the middle of the brain. So here's a little science lesson and let this create awe in you of God because God made this stuff, right? Science and, and, and God don't work at odds uh, against each other. I used to think that science and God were at odds against each other. But what scientists do is they discover what God has already put in place. And so when we read about a new scientific discovery, we should be like, oh, Lord, you did that. We just found it, but like you put that there. You made that. You did that. And the limbic system is no different. The limbic system, the seat of the emotions and uh, our belief system is no different. And so this is where, in us, this is where most of our emotions lie. Things like fear and pleasure and desire and cravings and anger, all in the limbic system. And this is also where our belief systems lie. When I say a belief system, what I'm talking about is what we believe not about God. Not, I'm not talking about faith and spirituality. I'm talking about what we believe about the world, what we believe about ourselves, what we, what we believe about people. These like deep, innate things happen in the limbic system. This is how God made us. And this is what uh, Solomon was talking about in Proverbs 4.23 when he says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The heart, what science would call the limbic system, is where our belief systems about everything are housed. So two more minutes of science here, okay? (laughs) As a part of me building the case for why kingdom family is for the glory of God and for our good. So here we go. The limbic system is the seat of all emotions and belief systems. And the limbic system is only programmed by experiences. It can't comprehend words. It only comprehends experiences. And from the earliest age, 
We have positive or negative experiences, and these experiences determine the lens through which we see ourselves, people, and the world. This is what we would call a belief system. So there's these positive experiences. We have them. Awesome. They form right lenses for us to see the world correctly. That's the way God designed it. It's beautiful. He made us like that. Beautiful. But then we have these negative experiences. Not so beautiful. Those things distort our lens and view through which we see ourselves, people, and the world. Not like God intended it. So you're left at home as a kid to fend for yourself. You're terrified. Negative experience. Getting a traumatic car accident. Negative experience. You're abused in some way or some scarring word is said to you. There's a million different scenarios. Negative experiences all forming distorted views of ourselves, the world, and people. And most of these negative experiences are actually relational in nature, meaning they have to do with people. And when we have these negative relational experiences, the limbic system writes pathways to determine now how we're going to see people in the world and ourselves. A father says to a son, you're such a little sissy, you're never going to be a man. That experience of that creates something. A mother says to a daughter, you're not going to wear that, right? That dress makes you look fat. It creates some kind of thing. There's an experience that happens there. They form certain pathways. And you may not even acknowledge it at the time. You may brush it off or shove it down. or like, ah, it doesn't, I didn't even realize that affected me negatively. But the limbic system is smarter than you. God made it to comprehend everything. And so it knows what's happening and it begins to write pathways to try to protect you from being hurt again. It says, my parent, who I was supposed to trust, did something that hurt me. My parent is hurtful. They can't be trusted. My parent is a person. I'm not sure if people are going to hurt me. I don't think people can be trusted. Okay, I've got the like programming now. And now it's this lens through which we see stuff. This is a very oversimplification of what happens in the Olympic system. But now it's a belief system through which we live by. And often when we become adults and teenagers, we don't even realize that these things are here. Tell me if you've ever said something like this. I don't know, man. I just... I just don't trust people. I don't know why. I'm just weird like that. It's just hard for me to trust people. Or, I don't know, when stuff gets too emotional, I'm just like, I can't be here anymore. I'm out. Or, you know what? I just end up sabotaging every relationship as soon as it gets too close. Or, I haven't cried in years. It's so weird. I don't know. Can't cry. Friend, God didn't make you like that. Babies aren't born like that. That was most likely due to negative experiences, negative experiences that have programmed new belief systems, wrong, false. A result of the fall, belief systems about yourself, the world, and people. And then one day you explode, and you're like, where the heck did that come from? It was all there all along. You just weren't aware of it. So now we're starting to realize, like, oh, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something there. Okay, science lesson over. Here's the, (laughs) thank you. I almost failed at high school, but I did it. (laughs) Here's my, thanks, Jody. Here's my question. That's family right there. Here's my question. Is there any way to be healed from this? 
Because like Paul in Romans 7, he's like, who can deliver me from this body of death? Right after he came out of Romans 6, where he's just like, I keep doing this stuff, I don't want to do it. And I'm trying to do these things, but I can't make myself do it. It is, it's sin in me, but Jesus crucified my sin and buried it in a tomb. So why am I still doing the sinful things? Who could deliver me from this body of death? Can I be healed? And the answer is yes. And the first way is by what Paul says there. Who will deliver me? The first way that we can be healed is we can be healed through miraculous deliverance. You want to be healed and set free? God can absolutely 100% deliver you. And there are people in this room right now who that has happened to you. Instantaneously, God delivered you. And all of a sudden, your entire belief system about everything was healed and transformed and rewritten and changed. And you see everything differently. And you don't have any more stuff to like develop. Maybe you got some stuff, but it's like there. You're like, yes, God did it. It's a miracle. And we believe God can do this. And we ask him to do it frequently. And when we were born again, we were given a new heart. But I don't know about you. I'm still jacked up. But I'm born again. I was given a new heart. And I'm still jacked up. I was saved and given a new heart. And I am still in the process of sanctification. And it is a process of healing in my heart and mind, a process of transformation that is happening in me. And this process is actually where family comes in. Because I believe that when God doesn't transform our belief systems miraculously in a moment, it is because he is wanting to do it through a process of relationship. If God does things like bringing provision in our lives through his people, what makes us think that he's not going to do things like bring emotional and mental healing through his people? This is what he does. This is what God does. Yes, he can deliver you in a moment. If you ask me to pray for you, I will pray for you with all the faith in the world that God does that. But in my experience, many times he doesn't. And I am learning that it is not because of a lack of faith or because God is unwilling to do it. It is because there is something about the process of deliverance that is more valuable than just getting the miracle, especially and specifically when it comes to emotional healing. Remember how I said that the limbic system um, can only comprehend and is only programmed by experiences. It can't comprehend words. Well, here's the kicker. Even as adults, even as teenagers, the limbic system, what the Bible calls the heart, can be reprogrammed and new belief systems can be written. But the transformation can only come through new experiences. This is how God designed us. This is like his stuff. This is creation right here. And this actually happens a lot more than we would even realize. We just don't know the neuroscience behind it. But take a belief system about ourselves. This is one I hear all the time from people, maybe some people in this room. If I don't perform well, then I am not valuable. That's a belief system. It's programmed in there from something early age, okay? And then you're born again. And you start to preach the gospel of Jesus to yourself. And you're like, wait, Jesus performed perfectly. 
And I'm not judged according to my performance. And my value doesn't come from my performance. It comes from his performance. And he performed perfectly. You begin to preach truth to yourself. Oh, now I am accepted in the beloved. I am perfectly loved. And he smiles at me with acceptance because of the finished work of the cross. And hearing these truths is awesome. But how many of us have heard these words and they've had no lasting effect on us? How many times have you heard that? Many, many times. And you're still like, I know nothing. It hasn't gotten through yet. So when does the hearing of the truth actually bring transformation? When we experience the truth. We can read the Bible, for instance, and it can have no lasting effect on us until the Holy Spirit illuminates it and causes us to interact with his word. And all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, it's becoming alive to us. What is that? It's an experience. It goes from being words on a page to us experiencing the truth of it. And then all of a sudden transformation happens. And I believe that much of what is happening in our hearts when they start to change is that God is literally restoring Physiology. He is literally redeeming our minds and our hearts, what the science would call the limbic system. And why wouldn't he? It was his to begin with. Why wouldn't he be like, that's not the way this was intended to be. You're born again now. I'm going to start to rework stuff in there. Why wouldn't he? And this is actually what's happening when we think about the kingdom of God coming in and transforming our lives. We say it like this. The kingdom of God manifesting in our lives means that stuff starts getting redeemed, restored, and transformed even our minds, yes, even our minds and our hearts. So the heart is transformed. We're talking like scientifically, not by just words, but through experiences. We've all experienced this. We know this to be true. And when the damage was done through some kind of relational experience, which is how most of the damage in our lives is done, how do you think God will most likely heal that damage? If the damage was done through relational experiences, how do you think God will most likely heal that damage? Through relational experiences. If God doesn't heal you through miraculous deliverance, chances are he is wanting to heal you through new relational experiences. And what we know from studies is that transformation in the heart, the limbic system, comes through new redeeming relational experiences. Experiences with God, yes, relational experiences with God, but relational experiences with one another. Science is finally discovering what God put into place forever ago. Neuroscience has finally put words to it. God literally designed us to be healed in relationship. Like, designed us to be healed in relationship. So no wonder he calls it a family. Because family requires relationship and relationships are designed by God to transform and restore us. And yeah, this can happen with people who don't know Jesus. But here's the beauty of the gospel. I referred to it earlier, but when you believe on Jesus, here's what happens. Here's God's promise. I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what happened when you were saved. God put a spirit in you and then gave you a heart of flesh. But the heart of flesh doesn't mean that everything is healed in an instant. There is not a person in this room who was saved and then immediately fully sanctified. I know y'all, you're still jacked up just like me. 
A heart of flesh means a heart that is alive and is now shapeable, moldable, tender, and able to be transformed. There's no molding happening in a heart of stone. But he has taken out the heart of stone and put it in a heart of flesh. When we are saved, our hearts become alive and Jesus comes and makes his home there and begins to bring transformation, changing the way that we think and believe about everything. But this is a process. Somebody who's in process, say amen. This is a process and part of the process is designed to come through transformation in relationships with other people. And of course it would because God rarely works independent of his people. God wants to use relationships in your life with people in his body to restore parts of our lives. And no, not every person around you is is trustworthy. And no, not every person in the body of Christ was sent by God specifically to bring healing to you. But some of them are. Some of them were sent by God to bring new relational experiences that will begin to heal and reprogram your belief systems for your good and for God's glory. And yes, this only works with kingdom kids who are constantly reorienting themselves back to their identity in Jesus. Kingdom family life would be terrible if you thought I was your savior and you thought I was gonna bring you security and you thought I was your source of healing. Jesus is still at the center of it all. But throughout history, he has chosen not work independent of his people, but through his people. So to sum this up, we are relational beings created in the image of God for relationship. And when we were saved, we were adopted into a family of relationship. And yes, we are damaged by relationships. But yes, God is a redeemer and he will use the same stuff that hurt us, relationships, to heal us. Let me close with a two-minute personal testimony here. Uh, For the better part of 20 years, I had a few really close people to me. And those were like my dudes forever. And I was 100% content to have nobody else in my little circle. It was safe like that, right? No collateral damage, no personal damage, just good, it's nice, just keep it close. (laughs) People used to ask me, Don, why don't you want to be a pastor? Because when I was a worship pastor, I don't have to be in a whole lot of relationships. I just come up, leave worship, I leave the stage, right? Don, why don't you want to be a pastor? And I'd be like, I don't think I like people that much. (laughs) Just being honest. In fact, it was part of the reason why I originally wasn't really willing to even consider filling this position. And a couple of years ago, I was at this conference and I heard this phrase that began to change my life. It was so simple. I said it earlier, the kingdom of God should look like family. And I began to realize, oh, dang it. This is the way God designed it. I'm a part of this thing and I'm not operating and living like it. And so I began to step out, and Emily and I, we just started with a really small group of people here at Reality Ventura, and we just started treating them like family would. And a few weeks later, something began to happen in my heart. At the time, I was the interim first among equals here, and I would describe it like this. I love Reality Ventura. I just don't know that I like all the individual people. (laughs) Like, I love you. I'm just not sure I love you. And you, and you. I was like the Grinch, just a little tiny heart. 
And as I started opening up myself to this and realizing, wait, but the kingdom of God should look like fam. I'm one of those guys that doesn't want to waste my life, okay? So like when God shows me something, I'm not like, oh, I'm not going to deal with that. It's too hard. I'm like, dang it. I guess I better deal with it. I don't want to waste my life. I want to be about what God's doing. So he showed me the kingdom of God should look like family. I was like, I'm going to open myself up to it. And when I did, God began to wake up something in me. And suddenly I started liking people. And not like I'm an extrovert now, but like I started like random people, like just caring about the well-being of random people. And I was like the Grinch at the end of the movie where his little tiny heart that says, and his heart grew three sizes. And my heart was just like growing. And I was like, what's happening inside of me right now? And God began to grow something in me. That's, that's like the miracle of deliverance right there, right? And it all stemmed from this pr- phrase, the kingdom of God should look like family. And then I started seeing it all over scripture. Oh my goodness. God is a relational God of family. See, I gave my heart for years from the stage, but rarely to individuals, certainly not new individuals. But if the kingdom of God should look like family, then that meant that I was a vital part of the family and intended to participate in it. And me singing or preaching from the stage is not family. That might as well be showbiz if it doesn't include authentic relationships with the people that I'm preaching to. And no, I'm not gonna be close with every single person. And no, you're not gonna be in close, authentic relationship with every single person. But everybody ought to be in some kind of authentic relationship with somebody in the body of Christ. And I'll tell you what, as I allowed myself, as I have allowed myself to become a brother and a father, and a son to some. It has be, been the source of some of the greatest joy in my life. And wouldn't you know it? That God is using people to restore things in my life. Who knew? Body of Christ, like God intended it to be. And I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. So listen, this is where we're headed in the next several months. Most of us are still trying to figure this out. Very few of us got it figured out. But here's the deal. We're going to walk through this together as people, as a body, hopefully as a family. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Lord, I realize that... um, as inspiring as some of this may be, that once we stop all the hype and declaration of what Scripture says, we're still left with like the, <laughs> the seat of our emotions, which is just like, ah, it's a little scary for some of us. We feel a little uncomfortable. I don't know if I can trust. I'm fine alone. I don't know. I got this, some arrogance, some pride. And um, Lord, I'm asking that you would come by the power of your spirit and you would begin to make us willing to change. Just want to ask that, Lord, that right now you'd make us willing to change. I don't want to get overwhelmed with all the what ifs and what do I do. So we ask, Lord, you would make us willing even now by your grace.
And if you are here today and you, like me, um, realize, man, there's a lot more here that God has for me that I'm not walking in for one reason or another, but I am willing to, even though it might even be a little intimidating or uncomfortable or whatever, I am willing to. If that's you today, uh, I just want to ask that you would stand with me. I just want to pray for you. If you're here today and you're like, man, there's more of this that God has for me. And I haven't been operating in it as much as I want to. And uh, I want more and I'm willing. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm willing, Lord. If that's you, go ahead and stand up. And so if you're sitting, there's no condemnation. God loves you. We're all in process. Yes, you're missing out. Maybe you're being full-on disobedient right now and you need to repent. That's not my job to convict you of that. And maybe you're like, Dom, I have been set free into this and I'm walking in and it's so good. Praise God for you. Thank you. You, You're going to be forerunners to help show us how to do this stuff. For the rest of us who are standing, let's just put our hands out in front of us as if we were receiving something. And just agree with me in your heart as I pray this simple prayer. Lord, I don't want to waste my life in isolation. I don't want to miss out on anything that you have for me. And I don't want the people around me to miss out on anything you have for them that I'm supposed to be a part of. So, I am making myself willing to take little baby steps in the direction of family. I'm asking that you would grow my heart and help me to trust you, because this is scary. Help me to trust that you're not going to lead me anywhere that you are not going. You're going to be with me in this. I would encourage you today, whether you stood up or not, to maybe ask the prayer team to pray for you if you've realized, man, I'm, I need some help here. They would love to pray for you. If you've been damaged by relationships or even by the church, these people want to pray that God would begin to open up something in you to set you on the path of transformation. Or maybe you feel like, I'm just shut down in some way. There's some disconnect there. I don't know why. Yeah, maybe it's that limbic system thing. Lord, would you show me the first step to having new experiences in relationship? They're going to begin to heal that. Or Lord, maybe you want to just miraculously do it right now. The prayer team is here to pray for you in that way. Communion is available up front for the Christians to remember what Jesus did. And the carpets are here for us to take postures of worship before God. We're going to sing this song now, and it declares what I ended with, that Jesus is the center I'm not the center. You're not the center. I'm not your source. I'm not your healing. Jesus is all of it. He is at the center of it all, using his body to do his work. So let's sing this together now as a family, as a church.